0: Welcome to Graph Stuff FM, the place to find your path to graph. My name is Will Lyon, and we're joined by our co-host Lou Lazarevich today. In this episode, we're taking a look at finding data for your next graph adventure with Near4J.
1: A common theme we notice when we start talking to people about graph databases and how they work and where you use them you get a lot of enthusiasm from people. You get, this is great, Graphs sound amazing. I can totally see their value. They're fantastic, they're great. I'll have a go at one as soon as I can think of a project where I can use one. And that's not unusual. It's quite a change in thinking about how you can use graphs. And if you're not currently looking at a graph shaped problem that you're trying to solve, you may not necessarily see that direct leap about how you can go and have a play and just start emerging yourself in this idea of using a graph database. And it can be quite a big blocker. So what we're very keen to do in this episode is to show you the ways and means of being able to discover a suitable data set and just have a play, just get started with using graph databases. So first of all, when we think about finding a graph data set, it's probably a good idea to have a think about what does a graphy data set look like?
0: So we've talked about this in previous episodes a little bit, but it is, I think, a common pattern to think about, okay, does this data set make sense for working with as a graph? So there are some common characteristics that data sets that work well in a graph will have. So these are things like if we have lots of discrete entities, so we have people and books and articles and topics that are connected to them, these sorts of things. Uh, If you see a data set like that, it's probably a good graph data set. And also graphs are all about relationships. So relationships are a first class citizen in the property graph data model. So there should be some interesting questions that you can ask of the data that take those relationships into account. And oftentimes, if you're starting to draw a graph in your head, so if you're looking at a data set and you're you're thinking, oh, well, this person is connected to this review that they wrote of this business and you're sort of mentally drawing this visual, then chances are that's probably a pretty good graph data set. We talked about what kind of data makes sense for working with as a graph. What kind of data is not a good fit for graph. Well, if we don't have a lot of discrete entities, if maybe all we have are people and their name, that's gonna be a a very boring data set, but but you get the idea. There's there's not a lot of discrete entities to work with. There's not a lot of ways to model relationships between them. That's perhaps not interesting. Perhaps if there's a lot of aggregations, so sums, totals, aggregate data, without a lot of other context, that's maybe not uh, super useful. And then things that are just discrete values. So a lot of times you'll have like historical weather forecast for a single location over time, things that might be a better fit for working with as a time series, or if I have lots of sensor data observations. Now, it's not to say that this sort of IoT sensor data and time series data cannot be useful for exploring in a graph, just often the context or maybe the structure around these sensors is more useful than the actual observation. So to give you an example, uh, I worked with a project a while ago that was looking at oil and gas pipeline sensor data, and we had things like measuring the pressure of the pipe, looking at the temperature at different locations. And it turned out that actually what was more interesting to look at was the overall structure of this oil pipeline and how the sensors were formed, which ones were next to each other and downstream and upstream in the pipeline. So this sort of thing. So anyway, that, that's just a look at things to think about when you're starting to ask yourself, is this a good data set to work with as a graph? So we've talked
1: about what a good data set for a graph might look like. We've talked about what a not so good data set for a graph might look like. So let's start thinking about where you can find this data set. So if you've got an idea in your mind, something you want to explore, so maybe you're wanting to look at some book and author data, maybe you want to look at some movie data, you've got an idea in your head what you're looking for, then try searching for the data set. So you would be absolutely surprised what you can find sitting in public repositories. Just start that journey by having a search. So search for that topic, add keywords such as data or CSV or JSON, that kind of thing, and see what pops up. It could well be that there is a public data set there already, and you've got Dataset search areas. So, for example, Google has a dataset search area. So, that's datasetsearch.research.google.com. So, have a look in there, something might pop up as well. Another thing to check out is see if there is a public API available. So, very popular applications and services such as Twitter will have an API available. So, some great examples to check out would include the Open Movie Database meetup.com where you can stream JSON. you've got the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they will allow you to pull information about top articles and book reviews. You also have the Twitter API, which we've mentioned. So there's lots of good fun projects to have around that. And also check out unofficial APIs.
0: Unofficial API is a term that I like to use to describe web applications that make the data they use available publicly. So for example, around election time in the U.S., sites like New York Times and Politico put up these live election result dashboards. And if you check the network tab in your web browser, you'll find that a lot of these web apps are actually loading data into the client and then processing that data for the dashboard on the client. And you'll see a JSON endpoint or something like that where the data is actually coming from that you can then use to load data directly into near 4 j So I like to do this anytime I see an interesting web application, I'll just check the network tab and see if it's actually processing the data client side and making that data available publicly. One of the more interesting sites I noticed was doing this recently that I've been playing around with the data from is called NCWeb, which in the US at least publishes data about active forest fires, and air quality. So that's the concept of the unofficial API, which can be another great resource for finding data to
1: work with. So if you're thinking about a data set that you're excited about, were you inspired by blog post? If so, go check out that blog post, have a look where they pulled their data from, and that could be a useful place as well to pull some data.
0: So APIs are a great way of working with current up-to-date data, because oftentimes those APIs are are updating in in real time. So with New York Times and Washington Post, you're looking at that day's top articles. The Meetup API is actually streaming JSON, so you're getting that in real time. And that can be useful for building web applications and and doing some analytics in the graph, but it can also be a challenge sometimes to work with changing data. So there are lots of static data sets available as well that we don't have to think about how to handle changing data values as it's coming in. So this is another sort of class of sources of data are, uh, for lack of a better term, we can call them popular data websites, I guess is maybe a way to think about these. So these are things like Kaggle. So Kaggle is the site that has things like machine learning competitions where there's a data set released and we're working to build machine learning implementations that are making predictions or answering some question. But there are lots of really interesting data sets that are available from Kaggle. And oftentimes those are sponsored by real companies that release real world data from those companies' businesses, uh, which can be really interesting. Related to that are hackathon and challenge websites that may release some data set as part of the challenge. So DevPost is a great way to find these hackathons. We just hosted a Year for j GraphQL hackathon on DevPost. Other challenge sites, there's the Yelp dataset challenge where each year Yelp releases a subset of their data on businesses, users, and reviews, and challenges the community to come up with interesting ways to use that dataset. Uh, there's Movie Lens, which is a data set of movie recommendations that came out of a recommendation system challenge. So that's a good one as well. And that one we actually use in the uh, recommendations near JCN box. Another category of these data websites are data portals. And so these are things like government data sets that are released to the public. So these are available on the national level. So things like data.gov in the US, data.gov.uk in in the UK, campaign finance data is really interesting, who's donating to what candidates looking at their connections to companies, this sort of thing. In the UK, there's a data set of all property ownership, as well as company ownership as well, which is really interesting. And then at the city and the state level, there are often data portals. So maybe search for your city's data portal to see what's available. I know that New York, Philadelphia, and San Francisco in the US have really good data portals, which we'll be sure to link all of these in the show notes. Kind of related to the government data portals are data sets that come from data journalism. So the this is a type of often investigative journalism that's using data to drive the story to find interesting insights in some public data set. And a lot of times these data journalism groups will uh, release the data that they used for these investigations publicly. 538 does a really good job of this. I think they publish almost all of their data sets to GitHub in really nice clean CSV format. So that's a really great wealth of information there. And the other thing that's great about these data journalism public data sets are that the data journalism team has often gone to great lengths to clean these data sets, uh, clean and dedupe them, which I will talk about a little bit later is uh, a really valuable step to go through.
1: Another really interesting place to get some data from would be roughly under the category of crowdsourced data sets. So a quick example, not quite crowdsourced, but do check out museum APIs. There are now hundreds of museums from around the world that either have an API interface available to their collections, or you have, for example, the Met Museum of Art in New York, who give you a flat file to download. So some of you who took part in the Summer of Notes Challenge last year will have in fact worked with that data set. So really fun data. And then more specific crowdsource data sets, for example, OpenStreetMap, where you can go and find very rich information about anything from roads and motorways, to intersections, to junctions, to street furniture, benches, bins, public conveniences, through to trees. It is absolutely amazing data set where everybody from around the world are contributing to information about their local area. And we do have an OpenStreetMap importer for Neo4j. And as well, you will find on our sandbox, you've got an example of working with a cut of data from the OpenStreetMap. So it's a great way to start exploring and having a look. And I'd also like to shout out Estelle Sifo. So she's part of the Neo4j community and she's done a lot of work around pulling data in from OpenStreetMap and working with that in Neo4j, as well as her Neo Maps application that runs with plotting out some of that processed information. And also you've done a lot of work around this space along with Craig Taverner. So those are definitely names to check out if you are interested in the OpenStreetMap set. Other big one, Wikidata, Wikipedia and DBpedia. So these are all great examples of crowdsourced information where people are working together to update those data sets. And some of you may notice that those are in an RDF triple format. So you can use Neo-Semantics to help you work with that data and pull it into Neo4j. You've got ConceptNet, which gives you concept hierarchies, and that's very useful for NLP work. You've got data world, so that's data.world, and that's got a huge collection of open and crowdsourced data sets that you can check out. Open library, so if you're looking to have a play with data around books and authors and snippets and titles and that kind of thing, that's a great place to go there, so they've got an API. and. Another mention as well, you would be surprised what you can find on public GitHub repositories. So do go have a look, have a search within GitHub to see what comes up. You may find some interesting data or information about APIs on there. And definitely there's a shout out there to github.com slash United States and github.com slash open elections. And it's also, A good thing as well to mention about these various sites that we've mentioned is we've used the assumption that you might know what you're looking for. But again, the nice thing about these collections, especially around Kaggle, around the hackathon websites and so forth, you can just browse and have a look and maybe there'll be a data set that catches your eyes. And if all else fails, you can always try generating some data. So there is a nice trick, which we like to call the Google Forms trick, where you can go off, create a Google Form for free, create what questions you want to ask. Maybe you ask friends and family to fill it out. Maybe you yourself do a bit of crowdsourcing and ask social media for people to fill that out. And then you can open that up as a spreadsheet and download it as a CSV. And you've got data generation websites, such as Mockaroo, where you can specify what kind of field do you want? So do you want some kind of a string field or a varchar? Do you want floats, integers? You can give it some information and then we'll go away and generate, mock up some data for you to go off and import.
0: Okay, so now we've found an interesting data set that we wanna work with. And now it's time to start thinking about how we work with that data as a graph, how we work with it in Neo4j. Oftentimes when we're talking about these public data sets, we end up with these flat files, so like CSV type format, and we then sort of need to think about, okay, how can I model this as a graph? So we have the graph data modeling exercise uh, to think about, but I think before we even get to the point where we're ready to forming the graph model that we want to work with, it's important to have the questions that you want to ask of your data. At least have those in mind, at least have some general area of the type of questions you want to ask, because oftentimes this is going to inform the data model that you want to create and how you're going to import that data into Neo4j. So knowing the questions you want to ask can inform, for example, do I want to model this as a node label, as a property, as a relationship, some other type of structure, that sort of thing. So Questions you're going to ask are, what are interesting insights that I can find if I know that, say, a person is connected to a company in the data set? Are there aggregations that I can do if I'm looking at maybe campaign finance data? Can I find everyone who works for Google and what candidates they're donating to? Would that be interesting? Can I find similar nodes in the network? So for example, if I'm looking at businesses and user reviews, can I find users who have similar interests, these sorts of things. And one thing that is really interesting to think about is what happens now when I start combining these data sets. So, let's say for example if I take the UK property records data set and the UK company ownership data set and combine those together, well then I can start to look at people who own companies and what properties those companies own. So I can start to traverse across these data sets and start to uncover some really interesting connections. So, I think before we we get to the point where we're drawing out our graph model, think of the questions you want to ask of the data.
1: So we've had a think about the questions and now we can start to think about what the model looks like. So typically when approaching this, have a think about what is the center of the universe of your model, of your question. So picking up on the example there, talking about UK property records, and uk comfort company information it's quite likely if the kinds of questions we're looking to ask are which companies own which properties and then we're looking at who is a director of that company for example then quite quickly we can start to imagine that actually company is going to be the center of our universe because all of the relationships are going to be coming off of company so we're going to be having addresses of those properties coming off of company. We are going to have the registered address of that company coming off of company. We're going to have the director coming off that company and so forth. So in that scenario, if the questions we're looking to ask are which companies own which registered properties in the United Kingdom, that's how the model would look like. Now, if actually the question we were looking to ask was we want to deduplicate or find similar addresses. So we're taking the registered address that we find in companies house, and we're taking the address of a company that is in the property database. And what we're trying to do is find which ones are similar, then all of a sudden, it's the address that becomes the center of the universe in our model here. And this is quite important, because this is then going to start to drive the thinking about what's becomes a node, what becomes a property. So for example, and let's keep working with this example. So if we are looking to try and map properties to a director, then we're probably assuming to some extent that the data is clean. So we're going to be doing links to addresses. Now, if we were trying to do something around similarity, then what we would probably do is we'd start to, what we call ray fire our node. So our node may have the properties of an address line and a postcode and maybe a country. Whereas a rayfied model, we'd have a node that's address, but then it would have three nodes coming off it. So one node would be address line, one node would be postcode, one node would be country. So these are certain things that start to feature based on what questions we're looking to ask. So it's looking at things like, is there a certain attribute or element commonly referred to in the query. So let's pick another example here. So if we were looking at, for example, people and books. So let's say we want to pull in some data about what books people have read. So let's say they've been posting it on social media and we've done some uh, done some work to clean that data up. And now we've got uh, usernames and we've got book titles, and then we pull in another data set. So we're doing a mashup here where we pull in some data from the open Books data set, and we then pulled the book title and the author and the genre and that kind of thing. So we're starting to pull that things in together. Again, what's the common element that we're querying on? So if we're always querying on title, then that's going to be a key value there. If actually we're always querying on, say, the author, so actually what we're interested in is to have a look at different books that an author has done, then maybe we're going to pull the author title out. So there's lots of different trade-offs that you're going to be doing based on the query you're looking to ask and performance-wise. So it's quite a difficult one to explain on a podcast, but the best thing to do is to think about what questions you're looking to ask. Are there common themes? So do common nouns keep popping out? And if nouns keep popping out, they're probably going to be your node labels. Do you keep asking quantities about things? So those are probably gonna move more towards being, a node, on a node rather than as a relationship and so forth. And once you start to start thinking about that, and if you start having a few more questions and you're not so comfortable with modeling in the graph, I would definitely recommend checking out our Graph Academy course on modeling if you're a bit new to it.
0: So if you're looking for some inspiration in how we can go from data set to graph model to working with that data in neo4j there are lots of resources and and we'll link some of these in the show notes but one thing that can be helpful is looking at pre-built neo4j graph examples uh, such as neo4j sandbox so neo4j sandbox is a hosted environment that we can spin up neo4j instances that are populated with some data sets that we choose from. I think there's, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 out there now at this point. And the nice thing about this is that someone has already done uh, the finding of the data set, the cleansing, and in some cases combining some data sets, importing it into near 4 j and included some cipher queries, some visuals and things like that in an interactive browser guide that's built within neo 4 browser that we can go through and explore these data sets. Now, all of these data sets that are available on neo Sandbox are also available as Neo4j dump files that are published on GitHub. So the neo 4 Graphic Examples GitHub organization, which again, we'll link in the show notes, has a, a GitHub repo for each data set that you can find in Sandbox that has code samples, for example, in the drivers for working with the data sets but it also has these dump files. So what is a Neo4j dump file? So a Neo4j dump file is like a compressed version of the database that is portable from one Neo4j instance to another. So what's really nice about this is in Neo4j Aura, for example, you can just drag and drop a dump file into the web console app for Aura, and that will load your data set into Neo4j Aura. So you can do that with all of the sandbox data sets. You can work with those locally, import those into browser, which is really nice. Uh, some other good resources for inspiration are things like the Neo4j live stream. Lou and Alex are doing a series on working with data sets in Aura free. So that's a really fun one to watch that develop going forward all those are recorded and then go to the YouTube channel so that's a good resource and then the UFJ developer blog has a lot of examples on this kind of working with data sets modeling that sort of thing okay so that, that's some ideas for inspiration so now we've talked through how to look for interesting data sets how to evaluate those data sets for if they're a good fit for uh, working with a graph or not. We've talked about how to think of interesting questions that we want to ask of the data. And we've talked about how to think of identifying our graph model for working with this data in property graph model and Neo4j. So I think that only leaves one more step and that is importing our data into Neo4j.
1: Yes, so here we are. We've got our data set and we're about to go. We've got the model, we're, we're all set, but you may need to clean your data first. So as Will mentioned earlier, you've got 538 and they put a lot of effort into cleaning their data. And certainly if you pull some of your data from some of the museum APIs, that typically tends to be cleaned and standardized, but you are not always as fortunate to get this. So you will most likely have to do some kind of cleaning on your data. You've got a few choices as to how you want to go about doing this. So one option may be you want to use one of the numerous tools that are available to help you clean through your data. So for example, you can use things such as CSV kit, and that's going to help you do some level of cleaning and standardization and removing of funny characters and that kind of thing on your data. Maybe you're going to use dedupe.io to help you do that. So it's a Python library and you've got a hosted service associated with that as well. And it helps you to dedupe your data set and finding synthetic IDs for entities and that kind of thing. So these are things you are applying to your data before you pull it in. You may have an option as well with the driver so we'll touch on that one in a bit but another thing you can do as well is depending on how much data you're working with and how much time you want to put in another option is you can do some data cleaning at the time of load so either as you're importing the data into the database you can do some cleaning or what you can do is if the data is clean enough to import it, you can then do some post process cleaning on your data. So you can either use some of the Cypher functions that are available uh, out of pure Cypher. The other thing you can do as well is you can use APOC. So a quick reminder of what APOC is. APOC is a plugin you can drop into Neo4j and versions of APOC are available for the enterprise edition that you'd be running either as a service or through neo desktop, you've got it on neo 4 Aura, and also you've got it if you're running neo sandbox. So you'll have some variety of those and you've got a set of over 400 functions there to help you do various things. And one developed area within the APOC library are the various text functions and procedures. So in there, you have got things such as fuzzy text matching. So you can use things such as Sorensen dice similarity or Levenstein distance to help you with that. You've got cleaning functions that will strip out characters and a weird, Spaces and that kind of thing, and trim and that kind of good stuff. You've got phonics functions to help you match words that sound similar. You can use regex functions as part of splits and regex groups and so forth. So you have a very rich set of tools there to help you do some cleaning on your data.
0: Okay, so I guess I lied. I I guess there wasn't just one more step for importing our data. I guess we do need to think about cleansing our data a little bit first, but oh well. So now we are really at the last step, which is to load and import our data. So let's talk through a few different ways to approach this. And we'll talk through a few different options and the option that's best for you will depend a little bit on what format your data is in and also maybe some of your familiarity and and comfort with using different tools. But we'll talk through a few different options here. So the first option that we'll talk about is load CSV, CSV, comma separated values, even though we're not talking just about comma separated value files, this can be like tab delimited, fixed width files, basically any sort of flat file works with load CSV. Load CSV is this functionality that is built into Cypher, the query language for Neo4j. So oftentimes we're writing these load CSV scripts in Neo4j browser. This functionality that's built into Cypher that will allow us to parse CSV files. And this can be either from um, a local file, or it can be from a remote hosted CSV file. So for example, you could just point load CSV as one of these hosted files from say like one of the data portals if they're hosting CSV files that sort of thing but the the key idea here is we're just writing Cypher to load and parse the CSV file and then we write Cypher to describe the graph pattern that we want to create so We're writing things like create and merge statements in Cypher, followed by some graph pattern. And this is really neat and really useful because it allows us to leverage this really powerful concept from Cypher of drawing these graph patterns. So we just draw these ASCII art graph patterns um, of how we want to create the data. And then we've loaded that into the graph. A distant perhaps cousin of load CSV is the bulk import tool for Neo4j. So this is the Near 4 j admin import command. So this is a command line tool, the bulk importer. This is useful when I have very large data sets. So load CSV that works within the transactional nature of near 4 j So it's good for small, medium-sized data sets, roughly we're talking about up to maybe working with a, a few million lines of a CSV file. But if I have some a larger data set than that, if we're, we're talking about like tens of millions um, and more rows of a CSV file, then maybe I want to skip the transactional nature of near 4 j and I just want to write directly to the file store. So um, skipping a lot of steps that means that this is going to be a lot faster. The downside of that is I can only use this for my initial data load. So with load CSV, I can add data to an existing Nefj database with other data. With the bulk imports, the Neo4j admin import tool, uh, I can only do this when I'm first building my database. And I also need to think about how to structure my CSV files, how to clean them, how to dedupe them. With load CSV, I can do some cleaning and, and deduping, like with APOC, for example, that Lou mentioned earlier, but with the neo j admin import tool, I need to have already done that and have my CSV file structured in a certain way. We'll say that the neo admin imports, the bulk importer tool is maybe a bit more for advanced use cases, but just wanted to mention that it's out there so that when you're ready to, we'll say like graduate from load CSV, that's uh, sort of the next tool to think about.
1: So the mighty APOC steps in once again in our quest to load data into Neo4j. And as well as the various text functions and procedures that we covered earlier, there are also a number of tools available within APOC to help you load some data. So we've got a JSON loader. So in a similar vein to load CSV, you can use that to load either local files with JSON in there, or you can link up to remote files. And you also have an option to work with APIs as well that are providing JSON outputs. And you can work with authorization headers as well. So if you need to do some level of authentication, you also have an XML parser available within APOC. So this is great for things such as pulling podcast and RSS information. You'll also find a lot of the website and public repositories tend to have their information published as XML. So again, that's another great place to be able to grab that information and work with that and get it loaded. Another tool you have as well is load HTML, and this will allow you to do some level of web scraping. You will provide a URL and what you will do as well is you'll provide some elements that you want to pull that information out. So it'll help you do some level of assisted web scraping. And last but not least, you also have a JDBC connector available within apoc so this will allow you to connect to most sql databases from cypher so if the sql database that you're looking to connect to has a jdbc connector then you can use it with that route and what's really powerful with this is you can use something like neo4j browser and you effectively call your APOC function, you put in your connection string for your database, you write your SQL query that you want to push to that database within Neo4j browser. And then when you pull that information back, you can do things with it and go off and save that into your Neo4j instance. You also have some other tools as well. So you've got the Near 4 j ETL tool, and this is a no code data import option. Again, importing data from a SQL database. So it is very much a click-bluff experience. You effectively give it a connection string. You let it know what table you're looking to do. It'll go off, it'll pull back information about the schema in your database it will suggest a model to you, you do a bit of um, tweaking, and then away you go, you pull that into Near 4 j And there are going to be more ways you can pull your data in, but we're gonna cover one last chunky one before we wrap up this journey, and that is with drivers. So we have a number of official Near 4 j API drivers to be able to, Work with your language of choice to connect to Neo4j. And also, we have many more community drivers as well. And this is really useful for you to be able to do any specific data cleaning you're wanting to do with a specific libraries. So, for example, there will be many data cleaning and processing libraries available in Python, JavaScript,.NET, .NET, etc. So, it's really good if you are doing an API mashup against so if you're looking to bring in lots of different APIs and other data sources, and maybe you bring in some reference data to and you're doing some fine tuning. So obviously, it makes sense if you're going to do any big amount of work around there, you do that at a programmatic level, and then you then use the driver to push that data into Neo4j. So that's very useful for cleaning outside of Cypher. It's also the process that you do is you do something such as passing a JSON object as a Cypher parameter. You can unwind over it and use that to pull in, and then you can use Cypher to express graph patterns over it to create that data in there. So hopefully we've given you on this very quick route, some inspiration about how to get started.
0: I'm sure we missed some really interesting data sets or ways of loading data in Neo4j. So please let us know what we missed. Let us know on Twitter, just hashtag Neo4j and share with us what interesting data set are you working with that we should know about. But that's it for today. So thanks for joining uh, and we will see you next time. Cheers.
1: See you later.